0: Everybody said, wow, hallelujah, amen, amazing, thank you, and all of that. So praise God for the music of this season and for these folks who lead us so well in celebrating Christmas as a church family. Well, we have lit the candle of preparation today and we're reminded that God prepared this world for the advent of his son and nothing is haphazard with God. We believe he's also preparing this world for the return of his son. And it's our hope that as all of that is happening around us, he's preparing us to celebrate the birth of his son. So you know our theme for the Christmas season is the incarnation, why does it matter? you know that we have been asking this question all year long, why does it matter? And if you would like to just point your friends or neighbors or anyone who has a question about the meaning of Christmas, you know, we have a, a web page that we own, whydoesitmatter.org. And if you'll just go to whydoesitmatter.org, no question mark after matter, just whydoesitmatter.org, You'll find there a a video that I have done, we've produced, explaining Christmas. Why does Christmas matter? It also will give people the opportunity to go to a site that helps them understand how to follow Jesus. And so uh, that's just a simple thing that you can point people to. If you don't have time to talk to them about Christmas, you can let them know they can go to that website and we'll try to answer their questions for them. So with that said... Today's message is actually going to be taken from a portion of the text that the Kaisers read for us early, earlier today. I've entitled the message, The Hope of the Ages, and the text is found in the book of Isaiah. So if you have your copy of the Old Testament, we're going to go back to Isaiah chapter 9. And when we find ourselves in Isaiah, we are some 740 years before Christ, And so if we go back 2,000 years to the birth of Jesus, if we will reach even further back into antiquity, another 740 years or so, we'll find ourselves in the context that Isaiah found himself in. When Isaiah was prophesying, preaching, teaching, writing, Israel had divided into two nations. It was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known simply as Israel. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. And so you had these two groups of people living in Israel. They each had their own kings. They had their own governments. They had their own armies. And they had their own understanding of the property for which they were responsible. Isaiah was a prophet in the south. He was a prophet to Judah and he was close to the kings of Judah. He prophesied during the reign of Uzziah, briefly, and then Jotham and Ahaz, Hezekiah, probably more famously, and then Manasseh. At the time, um, both Israel and Judah found their very survival in peril. There was a massive empire north of Israel and it was known as Assyria. And Assyria at that time was the growing world power. To the south of Israel was another world power, Egypt. Assyria had its sights on Egypt. Assyria wanted to take over what you and I would consider or understand to be the ancient world, and it was growing in its power, and it was beginning to move southward toward Egypt. But in between Assyria and Egypt was the land of Israel. And so Israel and Judah was in the line of fire, if you will, of Assyria's desires. You had some of the tribes in northern Israel who were certainly under peril. The tribe of Zebulun, Naphtali, they were right on the the line, if you will, of Assyria's march southward. And Isaiah lived at a time where the ancient world was this confluence of pagan cultures and pagan religions and humanistic perspectives. It was a very complex era in the history of the world. It was in that very season when God spoke to this man. And Isaiah will record the messages from God. And as he does so, he provides for us the longest prophetic book in the Bible, and it has the most sweeping perspective of any prophetic book in the Bible. And ever since it's been written, it's captured the imaginations of Jewish theologians and the New Testament writers, and then consequently Christian theologians have spent so much time in this grand book that we call Isaiah. So with all of that said, look with me at Isaiah 9 as Isaiah is talking about the challenges of Assyria's assault on Israel and on Judah. Assyria was making its way southward. Everybody felt the threat and the pressure. And the question was, can we do anything to thwart this world power? Judah was so small in comparison to Israel. And if you put Judah and Israel together, they were very small with comparison to Assyria. Some people were saying, we need to strike an alliance with each other. Others said, no, we don't trust each other. We need to strike an alliance with Israel. And so if you can imagine, one one commentator put it like this. You had three mice who were trying to decide what to do with the cat and they were trying to figure out do we make an alliance with each other or do we go ahead and just make an alliance with the cat and see if we can survive if that makes sense. It was a very challenging time. In the midst of all that God sent a message to Isaiah. So look at Isaiah 9 verse 2 where Isaiah says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so there's at least a part of the message from the Lord through Isaiah to the people of God. Now with that said, I want us to fast forward for a moment to 2023 and think about our day. Because this is where we live. We don't live in the 700 B.C. era. We live in this era. And here's what I'd say about our context as we are preparing for Christmas as Christians in our society. I would contend that we live in a day where the fallacies of humanistic, relativistic, and mistaken religious worldviews dominate the cultural landscape. We live in a challenging time, I would say. I look around me in this era, it's, it's humanistic, it's, it's relativistic, it's, it's pluralistic, and the worldviews that people espouse in my society seem to me at least to be so faulty and limited. Because you see, your worldview, view, how, how you view the world, the lens through which you focus all of reality, how do you understand the, the universe, is one of the most important things about you. Because it governs your decisions. It, it governs your ability to digest what's happening around you. It affects your behavior. And it is all-encompassing. And I'm living in a day where my society is just... It seems to be characterized by this eclectic, hodgepodge approach to the explanation of reality. And so consequently, as I look around my society, at least it seems to me that my society has been led to this confusing, chaotic expression of conflicting worldviews worldviews that are sometimes held simultaneously by the same people. It's almost as if, My daddy used to say this, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. I don't know if that makes sense to y'all. But it appears to me that so many people just talk out of both sides of their mouths all the time. They have they seem to hold conflicting worldviews. There's this fascinating approach in my society to morality and ethics. There seems to be no standard. And what's fascinating to me is it cuts across all spectrums. It's almost like it doesn't matter in this society. You can be a liberal or a conservative or a moderate in any arena. Pick it, religiously or politically or whatever. And there just seems to be so much inconsistency. And I find myself asking the question all the time, where is the moral compass? Where, where, where is the, the standard of right and wrong? And there seems to be so much fear and so much anger in my world. And I've watched in my lifetime as we have elevated the self to a throne, if you will. There's this radical expression of individualism in our society. And it seems like the most important value that our society holds is tolerance. You just have to be tolerant. Unless... You are facing someone whose views you happen to be intolerant of and then intolerance is okay. So like I said, you can just talk out of both sides of your mouth. You can preach tolerance and then when all of a sudden you rub up against something that you disagree with then all of a sudden intolerance is okay at least just for a little while. It's fascinating to me. There's religious syncretism. Personal preferences seem to carry the day. It's almost like My contemporary American brothers and sisters, they seem to just shop for religious and philosophical views. It's almost like we take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, maybe a dash of this, and just a pinch of that, and somehow build this worldview that is just filled with so much inconsistency and is faulty and limited in its perspective. I guess what I'm trying to say is it appears to me that creation has just lost its way. So, uh, Merry Christmas, is what I would say. (laughs) So what's the answer? How do we face it? Well, as I shared with y'all last Sunday, I don't know that anger is the answer. Here's what I would say about anger. I think it's okay to get mad. It's just not okay to stay mad. Because the world will only listen to an angry voice for so long. No, there's got to be something deeper than anger. There's got to be something that motivates us as we try to respond to this deluge that seems to be sweeping across our society that just feels so limited to me and so faulty. So Here's what I would propose as we begin to think as Christians about what we're really celebrating at Christmas. I think there's a corrective that needs to happen. And this is how I would put it. I think we as Christians today must engage in what I would call a meaningful pursuit of ultimate meaning of reality as revealed by the only true God through the revelation of himself, through his word, his world, the word. I think we as Christians, it is incumbent upon us to truly pursue what we believe is the ultimate meaning of reality because our world depends on it in my opinion and so i would i would say that isaiah is very helpful at this point because isaiah has produced this sweeping book of prophecy and somehow Isaiah can hold on to this powerful worldview that he had that was rooted in his belief in the God of Israel being the only true God. And he could see in the actions of God, God's ability to hold things like judgment and hope and servanthood and the kingdom of God all together at one time. And he pointed Israel to the truth that this God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, stands alone and there really is no other option but him and him alone. So so let me just show you one of the ways Isaiah does that. If you you still have your Bibles open um, if you'll stay there in Isaiah 9 we're going to come back to it. Look at Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46 Isaiah asks Judah to look at the other people around them and he wants to show them the difference between who the Jewish people are, the people of God, and who the pagans are. So if you look at Isaiah 46, verse one, he says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops low, these are their gods, their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome. A burden for the weary, they stoop and bow down together. Unable to rescue the burden, they themselves go off into captivity. Isaiah says, I want you to watch these pagans when they move from one place to another. They load their gods up on carts and wagons and then they bear the burden of carrying their gods with them wherever they go. Does that make sense? He says, I'm just watching and I see these gods of these ancient people and the people themselves have to put these gods on their shoulders, if you will, and carry them with them and bear the burden of carrying their own gods. And they even carry them sometimes to places of shelter and almost hold them in captivity. Look at verse three. Listen to me, descendants of Jacob, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel. You whom I have upheld since your birth and I have carried since you were born Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you, and I will sustain you. I will rescue you. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? God says to Israel, or through Isaiah, look at the pagan people carrying their gods wherever they go. I want you to look back in the history of Israel and find one time that you ever carried me. Just find one time. Because what you're going to discover is, I'm the one who does the carrying. I'm the one who carries you. I'm the one who sustains you. You don't bear me like a burden. I lift your burdens from you. As a matter of fact, why don't you compare me to all the other worldviews and you'll see how lacking they are. If there's ever been a time where that message needs to be heard by the people of God, I would contend it's today. I would encourage you and me to look around. Look at all these syncretistic views, all these faulty, limited worldviews and find any of them that compare with the grand sweeping narrative of the biblical witness about our God, the only true God. As Christians, we need to make sure we reclaim that truth because only the creator can fix what's broken in his creation. And so my world, my world that has all these competing worldviews, nihilism and, and postmodern Pessimism and consumerism and materialism and all these pluralistic religious views. What's happening to us is on our watch, humanity's value, life itself, is being robbed of its meaning. It's viewed as being accidental or random. Just some type of expression of a scientific reality and purpose has been devalued, relegated to the whims of an individual and ethics and morality are always relative and contextual. And so here I am as a Christian watching all of it and I realize I'm swimming upstream. But you know what, I've already done it and I've made my way to the head of the river and when I got to the head of the river, the only thing there was God himself. Everything emanates from him. And so I have settled in my mind, and I want to invite you to make sure you have as well, because I believe this God of the Bible created everything that is, and human beings have been created uniquely in his image, and he is good and trustworthy and faithful, and the character and the essence of God is the absolute final standard of all morality and ethics. It's not limited to some whim, some vote, some idea, some poll, some survey. No, the survey's already been taken and the only question that needs to be asked is what is right and what is wrong and the only one who can answer that is God himself. Do y'all even need to hear all this? I'm sorry, I, I just need to get it out of my system. Because I believe that God is transcendent and if you remove the transcendent from this world... And you place all value in what we can see and what is imminent. You just rob it all of its meaning and purpose. God is the one who gives meaning to reality. He's the one that gives meaning to history. He's moving history toward his desired end. Creation and history actually reveal God. His word is true and trustworthy. But here's the beautiful message at Christmas, that God has taken it all so seriously as he has watched creation and its brokenness and he decided to do something about it. In fact, he decided to rescue us, to redeem us, to restore us. And you know, y'all, that's really what we celebrate at Christmas. What is Christmas? Well, the message of Christmas is the message of Isaiah. It's the message of the New Testament. It's the message of Christian history. The light has dawned in the midst of the darkness through the birth and the life of the Messiah Jesus, the Son of God, the hope of the ages. You know, it's a dark time in Israel's life, Judah, Assyria is on the mount. People are wondering what's going to happen to them, and God tells Isaiah, here's the answer. Now, what do you think the answer was? Well, look at verse six, a baby, (laughs) seriously, how about an army? like a big army. <clears throat> How about some way to battle the Assyrians? How about some way to, <laughs> to win this thing? God, for some reason in Isaiah, is infatuated with children. Have you noticed that? He's already said in Isaiah 7, a virgin will give birth to a baby. And now he says it again here in Isaiah 9, it's actually a baby, a child. Here's what's happening. Isaiah, with the witness and the power and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is lifting his eyes beyond the dilemma of Judah, beyond the darkness of Assyria. In fact, his eyes are spanning the horizon of his own era without him maybe even understanding it. And God is speaking a word to Isaiah about all of humanity and the ultimate darkness, not Assyria, not the threat of Egypt, not the threat of Babylon, but the ultimate threat of evil itself, and that is what is causing everyone to live in darkness, and God says, I have an answer. And the answer will come from me in my time. And so if you look back at Isaiah nine, verse one, he singles out Galilee that's going to be valued. Galilee was, in the, was right in the way of the Assyrians. It was in the eye of their very target, if you will. And Assyria was about to march on Israel and walk right through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Look that up on your Old Testament map. That's the area of Galilee. And God says, one day I'm going to honor that area. A child is going to be born. And you and I know that story. And in the middle of the darkness, a great light will be given. And then you read verses 3, 4, and 5. War. Human power will be rendered useless in this battle because this battle is greater than human beings understand. But God understands it. And so the light is dawned. So guess what happens in Bethlehem on that fateful night? A child is born, but not just any child. Not not Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. Not just Hezekiah. But guess who's born that day? Not just any child, But the child who will be called mighty God, the prince of peace, and his reign and his rule will last forever. So what is Christmas? Christmas is the message the light has dawned to dispel the darkness of all the ages. And now everything changes. So who is Jesus? I mean, come on, y'all. Who is Jesus? I mean, he's the fulfillment of prophecy. He's the promised one. He is the person with a capital P. He's the light of the world. He is the one who brings in the kingdom of God, but not with some army like Ahaz was building or Hezekiah was building or any of the kings of Assyria or Judah who will follow them. No, the kingdom of God is going to be commenced by the king himself and eschatology is inaugurated in his lifetime and the age to come has been established. Who is Jesus? He's king, he's just, he's eternal, he's the son of God, he's the hope of the ages. So Christmas, you and I are celebrating this truth, Jesus, is the answer. He's the answer to the brokenness of this world. He's the answer to the darkness of this world. But let me say this to you personally. You may find yourself right now in a, a dark season. Maybe you're surrounded by what feels to be the assault of an overpowering enemy. We find ourselves Sometimes in those positions where our reality is overwhelming to us. And I would want to encourage you this morning, lean into the message of Christmas because a light has dawned, a new day has begun. With the advent of Jesus, everything changes. In history, as a matter of fact, it'll just split time. Everything now is counted after the birth of Jesus. And we are being prepared by God for what's about to come. And so if you're in the midst of a dark season in your own life, I hope, I pray this Christmas season you will celebrate this truth. A child has been born, a light into the darkness. And he's the Prince of Peace. He is the mighty God. He is our Savior. He's the hope of the ages. And I would also say this, as we celebrate it as Christians, We light these candles for Advent. We're also proclaiming another truth, that this same God who brought an end to the darkness that night Jesus was born is one day ultimately going to bring an end to all darkness. When his son returns next time as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we we bow before you today just in humility, recognizing that as much as we think we know, as educated as we are, and as many times as we've celebrated Christmas, we're mindful of the fact that perhaps it's truly beyond us to grasp it in its entirety. And so we... We bow humbly in the face of this great truth that a child is born, a son has been given. And we celebrate the beauty of that miracle. It truly is a night of new beginnings for, for the world, but also for us individually. And I pray right now, Lord, for those who find themselves in darkness today, in a dark period in a challenging era of their life, that that darkness would be pierced by the light of the birth of Jesus. And the power and the majesty and the magnitude of the incarnation would take hold in the lives of those who need it today. And they would see an end to darkness and they would see a new light and a new day and they would find meaning and purpose and joy in a relationship with you through your son. Help us, Lord, as your people, to celebrate this Christmas, perhaps on a deeper level than ever before. And may we lead others to celebrate with us. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.